been very excited about this word tonight because I feel like um, I've been working on this for months. Um, not this particular message, but this idea. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine this week. He said, it's, it's interesting how sometimes you feel as if the Holy Spirit keeps leading you back to a subject because you just aren't, you're either not smart enough to get what he's trying to say to you or you're getting a little more every time and he keeps pulling you back to the subject knowing that if he can squeeze a little more in you, maybe by the time you're old, you'll know something. (laughs) And so I'm kind of like, well, okay, keep squeezing, Father, whatever it is you're trying to say. So I want to go back to the subject of truth tonight. Um, It's a subject that I've worked on for a couple of years pretty intently, sometimes a little harder than others. And uh, that sounds so simple, like, well, truth, Jesus is the truth. What should we work on? Um, But I found it to be so much more than that because I'm involved and you're involved. And what I mean by that is, of course, we can say Jesus is the truth, but as long as we're involved, then we're going to bring a bunch of half truth to the table. And we're going to bring a bunch of partial truth to the table. And we're going to bring a bunch of lie into the table. And I'm talking about in his presence where we lay out what we are, but we keep a little bit of back here. And we go, well, no, I don't do that. And then that's evidence that you don't know how to tell the truth. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, because I know that we all know that there's some things that we sort of keep close to the vest or we release to the Spirit over time. And He's gloriously patient. Aren't you glad the Father? Love is patient. (laughs) If love wasn't patient, we wouldn't receive love because we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but the patient love of the Father goes, I'm going to love you in spite of yourself. I'm going to love you despite what you think and how faithless you are and how slothful you are and how lazy you are and how backward you are. And I qualify for all of those. And so I say to the Father, thank you for your patient love for me that pulls me in over time. I'll even say drags me in. Thank God for the love of the Father that drags me in, sometimes kicking and screaming, but drags me in anyway and says, I'm going to love you in spite of yourself, Paul. I'm going to love you despite these issues. And so for a while now, I've been working on truth and really trying to land on what it means and, and what it means to tell the truth and live the truth and walk in the truth. And I don't just mean be right. In fact, I don't even mean that at all, because sometimes we think the truth is what's right and then error is what is wrong. But I mean, what is his truth and what is the truth about me? And so take that, which has always sort of been, it's been for a couple years, a back burner thing that sometimes gets brought to the front burner and worked on a little bit and couple that with the fact that on the podcast, we've been working on the gospel of Mark and I'm going verse by verse through this glorious first gospel. I know it's not first in order, but it's the first one penned. And I'm working on that with that thought in mind. Like here's Mark laying down all these Jesus stories that no one's ever bothered to write down. And he's writing them down. He's, he's, it's frenetic. He's moving quickly. He uses immediately a lot. Jesus is moving so fast that by the, about the third chapter, his whole family thinks he's crazy. And you, you get this really wild-eyed Jesus as you work through the Gospel of Mark. And then Mark drops this literary piece of genius on us. In, in Mark 5, what scholars call a Markin sandwich. I want to... I want to introduce you to the Markin sandwich tonight from Mark chapter 5. And I want to let you know that the top piece of bread on this sandwich is a little incident with a guy named Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue. And Jairus has a daughter at home who is dying. And Jairus shows up in town because he heard Jesus is there. And he comes to Jesus and he says, won't you come to my house and come and heal my daughter? And Jesus says, let's go to your house, which is the famous moment of Jesus now meeting Jairus at the end of his faith. Because Jairus' faith is you need to come to my house. And Jesus says, "Okay, let's go to your house. And of course, the obvious question I ask you is, does Jesus need to go all the way to Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter? And of course, the answer is no. I mean, he can heal his daughter by speaking the word. He can spit on the ground, heal a blind man. He can snap his fingers. He can look cross-eyed. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's Jesus. He listens to the voice of the Father. But he's limited in this story by the humanity of Jairus, who says, come to my house. Jesus goes, okay, let's do it your way. Let's go to your house. The Mark and Sandwich has two pieces of bread 
What sandwich doesn't have at least two pieces of bread? And in the Mark and Sandwich, the bread is, Jairus says, will you come to my house? And the bottom piece of bread is, Jesus goes to Jairus' house. Well, what do you need in the middle of a sandwich other than a big old meaty highlight? Something that makes the sandwich the sandwich. Because the bread is nice, but you don't know what kind it is till you get in the middle. And the kind of story you're in shows up in the middle. In the Mark and Sandwich, what scholars will call like an ABA format. AA, these are the two, these are the same things. B is different. But the story in the middle, on the way to Jairus' house, is the woman with the issue of blood. And the woman with the issue of blood then becomes the centerpiece of the Jairus story, which it doesn't seem that way because we have no evidence that Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood know each other. And yet Mark wants to show you this journey so that you will realize that something happens on this story that directly relates to the bread of this story, directly relates to the Jairus side of the story. That's the setup. Let's do the reading from Mark chapter 5, verse 25. A certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. I want to ask you a question before we read any further. It's just rhetorical. Just think about it. Based upon your reading of the Gospels, how old is Jairus' daughter? Twelve. Twelve. How many years has the woman had the issue of blood? Twelve. Now, if you think that's coincidence, um, you don't understand biblical numerology. And I don't need to give you a deep lesson, but just to let you know, Mark throws them both in, in the same sandwich, for a reason. And so without understanding how, the little girl and the woman are linked. And Jesus is about to do a miracle. When she heard about Jesus, verse 27, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Now I want you pause and contrast this to Jairus, who said, you need to come to my house and heal my daughter. This woman said, if I could just reach into that crowd and grab hold of his clothes as he goes past, I'll receive my miracle. And Jesus is going to go to Jairus' house, and he is going to touch Jairus' daughter, but he's also going to give that woman who reached into the crowd to grab his clothing exactly what it is she reached into the crowd to grab because Jesus is the power source, but they are just the conduit of faith. They are just reaching out to grab Jesus with whatever amount of faith that they have. This is contrasting styles in faith. Come to my house or I'll reach out and touch you. But in either way, the miracle is complete. Keeping that in mind, because these things are going to come back as we roll through this story. Immediately, verse 29, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. In case you missed it, I said it twice, I'll say it a third time, immediately. So her healing isn't gradual. Something happens like that. I'm not going to try to play doctor in this story and give you the ins and outs of what's going on in her body. But whatever it is, is finished. Whatever was plaguing her isn't plaguing her any longer. Mark wants to make that clear. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitudes thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? In other words, that's kind of a silly question. A lot of people have been touching you. Verse 32, And he looked around to see her, who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him, and here's my title, the whole truth. And when I was sharing that a few weeks ago, and I'm not even really sure when I've done so many podcasts lately out ahead of where I am, I might not even have released this yet. So forgive me, but I've recorded part of this podcast. And when I got to this moment, something happened in me in the podcast where for the first time in my life, those three words jumped out of the story. I've read this story. I don't know how many times I've read it in multiple gospels, but I never noticed that Mark bothered to tell you that the woman bothered to tell Jesus the whole truth. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's a famous American jurisprudence statement. You put your hand on the Bible, raise your other hand and say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. No, they don't say, I promise to tell the truth, the half-truth, and nothing but the half-truth. But it's the whole truth that matters because it's the whole truth that's being asked. And 
incredibly without being asked this woman tells jesus the whole truth well that got my wheels turning because i'm reading that going what would it look like to tell jesus the whole truth and as my wheels started turning my heart started being convicted because i realized that the whole truth is something we're unfamiliar with and we're uncomfortable with because the whole truth means you lay in front of jesus every single thing that you are not to get something from him but because you already got something from him that the truth isn't currency that you use like dollar bills in the heavenly slot machine i'll give you something you give me something no it is heaven has opened the floodgates and poured everything into your life and god in response just stands there he doesn't even ask for it but he knows that what will come out of you from fear and trembling is the desire to unload the whole truth. It might not happen immediately. His grace happens immediately. His healing goes to work immediately. But what comes out of us in our response is the absolute and total whole truth. And my journey tonight is what would that look like? All right, well, let's start with fearing and trembling the woman in verse 33 fearing and trembling knowing what had happened to her came and fell down before him my first thought then is why fearing and trembling because when i hear that phrase it sounds pretty negative like i don't want to be so afraid of god that i tremble in god's presence so one of the things that is important is to realize what this might have looked like from a Jewish perspective, through Jewish lens, because when I look at it through my lens, I think negative. I think a God that's so scary that I can't stand up in his presence. Well, that doesn't sound very much like a father, um, or at least it doesn't sound much like a father you want to be around, uh, maybe a father you're scared of. And I personally don't believe that you should be scared of our father in heaven. I believe that you should sit on daddy's knee and tell him everything you need. And I believe you have a father that loves you and that listens. And I believe you have a father that goes to any length to express his love for you. I don't believe that he wants you to tremble with fear. In fact, perfect love casts out fear. And your father loves you perfectly, which means you don't have to cower in front of him all the time, wondering if he's going to strike you down with cancer or break your leg or steal your job from you or make sure your car doesn't start because he wants to teach you a lesson. You don't have to worry about that. So why does this woman, when she immediately receives her healing, fall into a state of fear and trembling? Well, I was talking to the Lord about that, and I wanted to get into the mindset of that era. So let me start with one thought. If you want to keep your finger there and just stay with us in that story, great. We're going to do a little movement into the New Testament in a moment as well, but I want you to go back to Psalm for a second, and I want to visit the Hebrew songbook because this was the stuff in a world where people did not have access to the Bible, we make this mistake a lot. We think that the Bible characters all knew all the Bible stories. Because we're like, well, they, they were Jews. They knew the Bible. We always treat them because they were Jews like they were just these brilliant Torah people. Like they had all the stories squared up. Not true. No more than Christians know all their Bible stories. And believe you me, I've preached in enough churches, Christians don't know very many Bible stories. I can't tell you the stuff I've got up and said, and it's like people watch had never heard it in their life and it's like from the gospels and you think gosh are we even reading this anymore and so i don't assume that bible characters knew their old testament unless they're g brilliant unless they're saul of tarsus he knows his bible stories i don't put the person on the street didn't know it two reasons one they didn't have printed bibles two they couldn't read them if they had them the world wasn't as literate we're the most literate people the world's ever seen um Thank God. They didn't have that. What they did have was song. And they sang songs their entire lives. So if you really want to know what the average Hebrew knew, read the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms was the stuff they were singing when they went to synagogue. It was the stuff they sang over their breakfast. It was what they sang as they worked in the fields. And those songs taught theology. And those songs cried. And those songs shouted. That's why those songs are sometimes depressing, because sometimes your life's depressing. And how are you going to pray it? You sing it in a, in a world that didn't know how to do anything else. I, I just gave that as a preface. You, you don't need that so much as it helps to realize that the average person on the street might have gotten their theology from the Psalms. So listen, something like Psalms 2.11. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. Okay, so when Mark takes the woman who has the issue of blood and he describes her as fear and trembling, here is a woman who has heard through her songbook that the way to serve the Lord is fear and the way to rejoice is trembling. Something immediately has happened in her body and she has a visceral, internal, immediate response that links her to God. And in her theology of song... If you want to serve the Lord, you show awe or fear. And if you want to rejoice for something he has done, you show trembling. But that's just the English. A little deeper in the Hebrew are these two words are connected to the word we use for flight. I don't mean flight. I mean run. As in fight or flight. So whenever fear... And trembling was used as a term. It was because the basic instinct in the supplicant was run. I can't explain what's going on. I need to get away from what's going on. Run. The reason that intrigues me is because in Mark, when she reaches in and she grabs Jesus' garment, she doesn't hold. She just grabs it and moves away and has an instant Psalms 2.11 response. Service and rejoice. Fear and tremble. Her heart says run. Her heart says get out of here. You shouldn't have done that. You're unclean. You're a woman. He's a man. You just touched him in public. Oh my gosh, he's making a scene. He stopped the entourage. He turned around. He's looking for you. Run. 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 Everything in her is telling her go away, away. And yet here's Jesus. The polar opposite of everything her heart is screaming, searching for her. And when he finds her with that eye contact and looks at her, he doesn't even require anything of her. He just says, who touched me? He doesn't say, what's your name? He doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He doesn't say, what do you need? He doesn't say, did it work? Do you feel better? He just says, who touched me? And her visceral response is run. And I said, Lord, why? Is her visceral response run? And I think it has to do with the whole truth because, because that's next. Because what is next when you reach out and touch the Lord as he goes by is the truth looks you in the eye. And in effect, the truth says to you, come and follow me. And all it's going to cost is everything you are. That's all it'll cost. And everything you are is absolute honesty. It's just being who you are. It's not being who you wish you could be. It's not being the best you. It's being the real you. The lying, cheating, conniving, covering up, jealous and greedy you. The lazy you. The slothful you. The backward you. You go, well, I don't think any of those are me. Are you, are you sure? That's why you run from the goodness of God because his goodness is so awesome his love is so powerful that the internal response is get away from this because what this kind of love is going to do is lay you bare man this kind of love is going to show you who you really are and if your first instinct isn't to run from that I don't know if you've ever told the truth this is why people run from grace not because they're scared it leads to sin, but I think because deep down we know that it'll lead to the truth. It'll lead to who I really am. It'll lead to pass the mask. It'll lead into the real me. And he won't have to lean on me for truth. It'll just be Jesus doesn't lean on her. He just meets her. He just finds her. He just stops the entourage and says, who touched me? And her response of flight, her response of concern, her temptation to run is exactly where we are if we aren't ready to face the whole truth. Now, I want to give her credence and credit before we move on from her. Well, we're going to move on and we're going to come back. But before we move on from her, I want to give her great credit in the moment where her heart fears and trembles, where her instinct is flight. She goes the other way. This is the greatest testimony. This is our opportunity to know him, to really know him. And this is our opportunity to really know us. In the moment when her heart says run, her mouth starts to tell the whole truth. She just gives in. 
And she lays her soul bare. Here's what I don't know. I don't know what it sounded like when the woman with the issue of blood told the whole truth. But I've got a feeling it had to do with how she had spent all of her money on physicians for 12 years and had not grown better, but had only grown worse. I have a feeling it was the backstory of how she started bleeding in the first place. It was the pain and the sorrow at God not healing her for 12 years. It was the whole story of how for 12 years she's been bleeding and she can't have a child of her own and no one wants to be with her. It was the whole truth about who she is and how hurt she is and how much it has bothered her and caused her pain. It might have even been the whole truth about how disappointed she is with God and the whole system and the whole process because that's telling the whole truth, man. That's getting down past your little churchy statements and getting into the real you. The part of you that sometimes is mad at God and the part of you that sometimes is disappointed with God and the part of you that needs an answer from God. That's the whole truth. Now I want to take a pause because her story is, this is the meat and the sandwich, man. You go into that next piece of bread, Jesus isn't finished. He's on his way to Jairus' house, but that's just, I want to take a pause there because I think that what happens in this woman when she reveals the whole truth is a direct response to what has already happened in her when she touched Jesus' garments. In other words, truth is a response to the goodness of God. It's not trying to get God to be good. How many of you know God is good whether you believe it or not? God is good whether you lie to God or not. God is patient and kind whether you ever reciprocate with any of that. And here's the beauty of grace. He's going to keep on being that even if you refuse to acknowledge it. And even if you refuse to accept it, he's going to keep on being a gracious God. I'm, I'm so thankful that he continues to be gracious when I continue to demand him to be legalistic. Because I've demanded him to be religious before. I've demanded him to bless me on my merit and be good to me when I'm good. And the father just shakes his head and smiles and said, you don't want this as much as you think you do. So I'm glad of his goodness. But I also believe that this woman is a sped up version of the Christian experience. I think she's a microcosm of our entire lives in one snap. We get it in one verse. She feared, she trembled, she told him the whole truth. Oh, well, good luck with also bringing out the whole truth the very moment that grace hits your life. Because my experience is it takes a while to dig down to the whole truth. We are like one more massive onion. You just keep peeling layers and the tears keep flowing. Like it keeps exposing more and more and more. She's, she's a sped up version. And the beauty of the Jesus stories is a lot of times they're sped up versions of your whole life. For instance, come here and walk on the water. And you, Peter swings his leg out of the boat and he walks on the water and he sinks and Jesus picks him up and they walk back to the boat. Well, I have found that swinging your leg over the boat is sometimes like a five-year process of picking your foot up off the deck. And, and doing this. Uh, yeah? And then walking on the water is not something that happens in 20 minutes, you and Jesus with storms, but something that happens over 20 years of you and Jesus in storms. And you don't go down one time, you go down 1,000 times. And he picks you back up and keeps walking you back to the boat. So the stories happen quickly, but they're microcosms of what's happening in us. So let's pause in her story and slow it way down. And Paul helps, because Paul's the deep theologian. Paul takes the this, this stuff Jesus is doing, and he sort of extrapolates it across time. You know, like he puts big words to it. He lets you think about it a little bit. He, and I'm not even saying Paul knew these Jesus stories. Mark doesn't exist as a gospel when Paul writes Philippians, most likely. But Mark's stories are out there. And so Paul is hearing these same things from the resurrected Christ, and he's extrapolating it out across time through his own language. Let me show you this. Go to Philippians chapter 2, and we are going to come back to our woman who we are unfairly calling the woman with the issue of blood because at this point in our story, she no longer has an issue of blood. So we're going to call her the woman who dared to tell the whole truth. I like that better. I think she does too. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Now, Paul, of course, hasn't got a copy of Mark 6. So he doesn't have the advantage of using his Strong's reference to go back and find another moment in the New Testament where they've used fear and trembling. But you just sat through the meat of the Markin sandwich where the woman with the issue of blood, fearing and trembling, flight or fight chooses to give the whole truth to Jesus because her fearing and her trembling is happening as a direct result of her miracle. And Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what we have done with this verse, for the most part, is turn it into works. That what you have to do now that you've accepted Jesus is you got to work that out. You better be scared you're going to do it wrong and it ought to scare you so much you shake in the presence of a thrice holy God. Because if you screw this thing up, you might miss out on your eternal home. We go, how do you know? Because you should be working it out with fear and trembling. Work it out, what he's done. But the reality is that the 12th verse doesn't tell the whole story because there's a 13th verse. And in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So I'm working out what he is working in. Condense this down. If I could but touch the hem of his garment, I would receive my healing. And immediately she is made whole of the plague. And Jesus turns and says, who touched me? And she fears and trembles because of what God has worked in her. And what comes out of her is the whole truth. Because your working out your salvation is not one bit less than you telling the whole truth. That is working out your own salvation. And you're doing it in response to what he's done in you. And so it is constantly bringing to the Father everything that you are. And this is why repentance is not a one-time deal. Repentance as mind change is a day and night and constant practice. But it is not just simply saying, well, I changed my mind about you. It is the laying bare who you are. He works in you, so you work out how do you work out? This is the simple question. How do you work out your own salvation? You go, with fear and trembling. That's not an answer. With fear and trembling, most people, that's, the only, that, that's what they throw in because they don't know what to actually do. So they just have to have an attitude with God. I'm just supposed to be humble. What God wants me to do is be humble. That'll do it. But fearing and trembling is simply the response of someone who knows something good's happened to them, not someone who's scared something bad's about to happen to them because something good had happened to her. So she fears and trembles. So my first response is, yes, I fear and tremble. I feel like I should run from this. He's too good to me. I don't deserve this. Has he made a mistake? Did he really forgive me of all my sins? Does he actually know who he loves? I mean, I don't know if he knows what I know about me. He wouldn't love me the way he loves me. There's your first part of fearing and trembling. Great. Now what do you do? You work out what he's working in. And how do you do it? Just like the one with the issue of blood. You tell the whole truth. What's that look like? Well... Let's start with this thought. Lies blind us. Half-truths make lies believable. So for too long, we are willing to settle on what is half-true about us rather than what is entirely true about us. Lies confuse us from who we could be and who we are by getting coupled with some things that are half true. We have fallen into this trap. We'll hear something and we'll go, well, I'll tell you what, that's probably about half true. We do this with the news a lot. That's probably about half true. There's a lot of half truths in that. And half truths are just enough truth not to mask the real truth, but to sell the lie. So be careful swallowing half-truths as if you've learned something. Okay? Biblical example. I can see you itching for a Bible example. The snake speaks to Eve in the Garden of Eden and says to her, Why don't you eat from that tree? You shall not surely die. Which is a half-truth. Oh, it's a lie. 
but it's clouded with a half-truth because she's not going to fall over dead. So maybe the snake's right. I mean, I won't really die. Oh, I'm not going to tell you about the other death that you're going to experience that's going to unleash hell into your life and actually get you kicked out of the garden. But hey, we'll talk about that after your snake bit. In the meantime, here's your half-truth. Eat it and something great will happen. And she goes, hmm, sounds pretty good. And eats it because the lie rides the back of half-truths. Now, I know you want 10 examples of what a half-truth might look like spiritually, but I'm not going to give it to you because it's not fair, because I don't know who you are. Not really. You do. And your journey, it's not Paul White works out my own salvation through his fear and trembling. It's you work out your own salvation through your fear and trembling. And so it's you that gets to the bottom of those truths. You go, well, I don't even know where to start. Great, then let's move on to this. Beg the Holy Spirit to shine the light on the truth in your life. He has the flashlight, not looking for your sin, but looking for you. And so let the Holy Spirit go to work. He's already paid for me. I'm his child, but I want to release whatever I'm holding on to that isn't true about me. Some of the things we hold on to about us are identities under our old man. He's dead. And your life is hid with Christ and God. Now you can say, yeah, but I still got his problems. But that's a half-truth. He's dead. You see what I mean? It's easy to buy the half-truth, which is a total lie. That ain't you anymore. In Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation but we'll keep dragging old us to the lord thinking that we're laying that out as the truth that isn't who we are don't buy the lie that that's who we are allow the holy spirit to reveal the truth about who we are and there's going to be some things we have to bring before the lord that we've tried to carry on our own maybe some hurts maybe some pains maybe some bleeding we need to be made whole of the plague the issue, I love the fact that the text uses issue because it didn't mean 2,000 years ago what it means now. Issues, but it works really well. You see, we got issues. And only in Christ do our issues find their solution. And so we work out of us all the issues. He's our healer and we lay them in front of him. So beg the Spirit to bring the whole truth to light. And then this, once the whole truth is brought to the light, remember this, everything you are goes into the furnace of his love. I didn't say everything bad about you. I said everything you are goes into the furnace of his love. You've heard me use this illustration before, but in my journey of trying to uncover truth, this has been the thing the Spirit has put up in big, stark color for me is that if you go into the fiery furnace, you will meet the fourth man in the fire. You will meet he who looks like the Son of God. And when you get in there, the only thing that's going to burn is whatever needs to burn. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lose their handcuffs and their foot restraints. And that's the only thing on them that, need, that didn't represent who they really are. What I love is that the furnace of my Father's love is going to reveal the whole truth about me and it's going to take off whatever I don't need. Experience, and that's not just something I'm experiencing. That's not like some end game for God. That's why I can't wait to get you in the furnace. He walks into and out of that with you. And, and He doesn't just do it once. We do it over and we do it over. The refiner's fire continues to work in our life as we lay this back at His feet. Now, I want you to go back. Before we move on, look at one more time really quickly at the bottom of 13. It's God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. I always like to point this out with groups. The word His at the end of verse 13 is italicized. For His good pleasure, it's italicized because that word is not in the Greek. And I think we did a disservice to the understanding of this verse by putting the word His because let's take it out and say it the way Paul wrote it. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for good pleasure. I firmly believe that God is working in you your good pleasure, not His good pleasure. 
Uh, that word his changes the whole point of that verse, but if you get rid of it, and we're not doing a disservice in getting rid of it, we're just dropping a word Paul didn't use. Just drop the word Paul didn't use, and what do you get? That as you tell God the whole truth, the whole truth leads you into the fullness of the pleasure of what it means to be one of his children. So this is a process. Now, I told you that the, the Mark and Sandwich, the meat of that story is, a, is your whole life condensed into one moment. All right, okay. If that's the case, then go back to that one moment and let's find something else that's going to happen to you as you tell God the whole truth. Mark chapter 5, verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. There are two things in this verse that if we're talking about this is extrapolated out across our life that become very important. The first thing is that this is the first person in the Gospels that Jesus calls daughter. This woman. The woman who was bleeding and broke Mosaic law by reaching out and touching a clean man with her unclean touch. And the clean man immediately dried her up of her issue and then gave her daughterhood. This is a sonship passage. That Jesus, without her paying for it, gives her daughterhood, except her currency that she... We don't, we, we don't buy out our redemption, we don't buy out our healing, but the currency she offers to God is the whole truth. And what she realizes as a revelation of giving God the whole truth is that she's one of the daughters of God. And so I think when people struggle to see themselves as sons and daughters of God, it could be because they are yet to unleash to the Father what they really are. Oh, they've received His grace and His goodness, but they haven't yet laid the whole truth out. They haven't yet worked out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And because they haven't worked it out, they're not able to work in that they're ones of the sons and daughters of God. It took me decades of following Jesus to realize I was a son of God. Not I'm the son of God, that's Christ, but I'm a son of God in the way you're a daughter of God and a son of God. Why did it take me decades? Bad teaching? Well, probably bad listening. But in a lot of ways, not working out my own salvation with fear and trembling because setting on a lot of things about me that are true setting on them and working on them. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to get better at that. And the whole truth is, this is, the, this is the part that's so crucial understanding the whole truth. The whole truth is that I don't work on what I am. The whole truth is I confess what I am because confession is really an admission of death. How many of you realize you've got to be careful who you confess to? Why? This is more important. Why do you need to be careful who you confess to? Because confession is an admission that there's something in you broken. And in the spirit realm, it's really an admission that you're dead. And the only thing you can do with the dead is kick dirt on them. You don't know how to resurrect people. We don't resurrect. He resurrects. All we can do is bury you. The reason why we're careful with our confession is because inherently we know that people can't fix us if we confess. They can just bury us. Society has taught us that if we confess, we're on the road to rehab and recovery. Jesus teaches us if we confess, we're on the road to resurrection. Those are two different things. So... When I confess to the Father what I am, when I give the whole truth out there, it's not to earn my salvation, it's an expression of my salvation, and it's the admission that what I really am is dead and in need of a resurrection. This is the part I love. That as I finally recognize the truth, He can really do something. I mean, He can really create something new in me as I find out or I lay down who I am. Let me give you another. I always give you a Bible story. Let me give you another Bible story. Jesus is in Bethany. He shows up four days late to Lazarus's funeral on purpose because he's looking for a confession. What's the confession he's looking for? Martha comes to him and said, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. Right there's your answer. I'm waiting four days on purpose because when I do my work, you have to be dead. 
It's the only way I can work. If you're not dead, you'll just kick and scream. So I waited four days to get you to say that. If I hadn't been there, he hadn't died. Great. Now let me ask you a question, Martha. You think he could live again? And she goes, oh, yeah, sure. Someday he'll live again. And Jesus goes, if a man is dead and could just believe in me, though he's dead, he could live again. So now he doubles down and he says to Martha, how about we roll the stone away? Listen to Martha. Lord, he's been dead four days. He stinks. That's her words. He stinks. And that's all Jesus needs to hear. Confession of death. He stinks. Stand back. Get ready. When you finally know you stink, I'm good. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus can't do anything to stop it. Did you hear that? He can't clean up. He can't comb his hair. He can't brush his teeth. He can't fix his stink. Right? Lazarus, come forth even in your bondage. I'm going to drag you out of that tomb. You can't even walk right. They don't, take the, they don't take the grave clothes off till he gets out of the tomb. How does he get out of the tomb? Have you ever wondered? How does he get out of the tomb in grave clothes? This is the resurrection that you get to start partaking in the second you confess. I stink. And he goes, oh, yeah, here's, here's some life. And you can't even stop it. Immediately I go to work. And Lazarus, I like to think Lazarus' feet are dragging as he comes out of the tomb. And Jesus, now the responsibility becomes up because Jesus turns to the crowd and goes, loose him and let him go. Here's what the church gets to do. Take grave clothes off of people. Don't tell them they stink. Take the grave clothes off them. Get your hands dirty. Get involved in their lives. You don't resurrect them. You just help set them free. Give them liberty. Teach them how to use their hands again. Teach them how to use their feet again. Don't put them back in the tomb. Keep them out of the tomb. Don't wrap them back up in grave clothes of your own devising so they look like you, but instead set them free. Right? And that's the glory of the gospel. This is why I get excited to come over here because what I get to do on these fourth Fridays is I get to dig around a little bit until I grab a little piece of the grave cloth that you didn't see and I rip the band-aid off. And yes, sometimes the gospel of grace even hurts because when you rip off the band-aid of my death, sometimes it goes, boy, I didn't know that about me, but thank God for his goodness and his grace. And I needed to see it about me. It's glorious that I get to see it about me. Thank you, Jesus. How about that next piece of bread on the Mark and Sandwich? So Jesus, while he's still speaking in verse 35, I, I, wanted to, I, I do want to say this real quick. I told you there were two things in 34 that extrapolate across time, get squeezed into one story. One is daughter. The other is healed of your affliction. Sounds to me like she's already been healed. So why does Jesus say go and be healed of your affliction? Because there's more th- ways of healing than simply accepting Jesus as your Savior. Accepting Christ as your Savior and walking into Him is an instantaneous healing that then works across the rest of your life because the Holy Spirit never stops healing you. And so He keeps on healing all the stuff you keep telling Him about as you tell the truth. Give Him the truth, He heals it. Give Him the truth, He heals it. Don't hold it back because of fear. Let it go, and He heals it. Guys, the end game for God is not you living right. I know we've been so conditioned to think that Christianity is to get us to live right. The end game for God is not you living right. With all due respect to Charles Spurgeon, right believing leads to right living. I heard the Holy Spirit six months ago. I said that in my prayer one day. I said, Lord, I know right believing leads to right living. And he said, what good does that get you? And I paused and I thought, what good would that give me? Right living. Then I heard the Holy Spirit, right believing, son, leads to right relationship. 
All I've ever wanted to do is know you and you know me. I don't give a flip for how you live. And I had to pause and go, whoa, wait a minute. My whole Christianity has been how you live. And he goes, welcome to grace. I do not have a relationship with you because of how you live. I have a relationship with you because I love you. I do not care how my wife lives. I don't spend one moment of the day thinking, I hope she does this and that, lives this way, thinks that way, acts this way, talks that way, dresses this way. My love isn't reliant on how she lives. If Lucas White is out there tonight doing something that would bring shame to our name, my love for him is not at all wrapped up in how he's living tonight. I just want him to know his dad loves him and is so proud of him it hurts. You go, you wouldn't be proud if you saw what he was doing right now. That's where you don't understand my love for him. Yes, I would. Because my relationship with him is not in any way reliant on whether or not he's living up to it. He does not earn my love. He does not receive it because he's good. My daughter tonight can be at work, do something stupid. And I hope to God she doesn't for her own sake. But whether she does or not, my love for her is absolutely unconditional and yet pales in the love that the Father has for me. As much as I think I love this woman independent of her works, it's nothing to how the Father loves her independent of her works. As much as I love Lucas and Lauren White independent of whether they're good kids or not, it's nothing compared to my Father looking at me and looking at you and saying, you want to know how much I love you? And then you watch Jesus put his hands out to the cross and suffer and die. And you go, wow. He says, I'm not asking you to live up to that. I'm asking you to get up here with me. Get up here with me because Easter's coming. (laughs) And out of that is the new you. Isn't that beautiful? While he was still speaking, 35. Some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why do you trouble the teacher any further? I want want to remind you of something. Jesus just called the woman with the issue of blood daughter. And the next word that comes out of the mouth of the people who walk up to Jesus, Don't bother Jesus. The daughter is dead. I think Jesus might look over at the one with the issue of blood and wink. I think he might wink and go, You bet she is. You bet she is. The old you? Just died right there in that street. The whole truth is that she's gone. But you know what? I want to finish this illustration, Jesus says. I want to finish this story. I want to show you exactly what death looks like to the father. Your daughter's dead. Why do you trouble the master? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler, don't be afraid. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Only believe. 39. Why do you make this commotion and weep? The child's not dead. The child's asleep. Because to the father, when you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, you know how he looked at you? Wake up to righteousness and sin not. You are dead in your sins. To everybody else, you're dead. But to Jesus, you're just one breath away from the rest of your life. Bring that to Jesus. And let him reach down into those nostrils and put the breath of life. They ridiculed him. He put them all outside. He took the child by the hand. Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose, walked. And here Mark throws this in so that the sandwich is complete. For she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement. And it's Mark's way of saying, remember what happened back on the road when we healed a woman who was bleeding for 12 years? And now here is a girl who is 12 years of age. She represents the last thing that that woman with the issue of blood would have been able to produce, a child. And now that that woman died out there in the street, this woman raises from the dead. Let me try it again. When that woman meets her death and walks into it with the whole truth in the street, 
a new woman stands up in this room and becomes a brand new man on the earth. Your whole salvation is in this story. It's all crammed into that encounter with Jesus. And all it took was the whole truth. You go, now, how many of you can't wait to start kind of unleashing the whole truth with Jesus? (laughs) Just going, Holy Spirit, what does that whole truth look like? What really looks like is the whole truth returns your potential. It takes what you've been bleeding out for 12 years and it brings it all back. You haven't lost one day in Christ. You haven't lost anything in Christ. Whatever you lose, that's the Job story. That's the end of the Job story where he gets it all back in spades. That's God going, whatever it is that's been lost, I will restore it to you. I will bring it back in this hour. I, I don't even know how to end. I, re- I honestly don't know how to end that word because I don't think it ends. I think it just kind of gets started. So let's just ask the Father to get it started, shall we? Father, to say that we have encountered your presence tonight is an understatement. I think we met you right there in that street. I think we reached out and touched the Lord and you turned and looked us in the eye. And the only thing we can offer is what we really are and what we really are is dead. And you say in that we can receive life. Thank you. I, I, I think I have just now halfway to 90 started working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. But you, for the first half of my 90, have been working nonstop. So I thank you for the good pleasure you're bringing to my heart and that you're doing in this room and that you're doing for those who watch and who listen. Do it your way. And we beg you, send the Holy Spirit to always show us the whole truth. In Jesus' name, amen.